The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're looking at the contentious medical and ethical history of circumcision. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell. A warning for those of you who might be listening with small children. This week, we're tackling a subject that requires a frank discussion of human anatomy and sexuality. My first guest is Sarah B. Rodriguez, Ph.D. Sarah is a medical historian and lecturer in global health and bioethics at Northwestern University. She's here to talk about her book, Female Circumcision and Clitoridectomy in the United States, A History of a Medical Treatment. Sarah, welcome to Science for the People. Thank you for having me. So this is not the first book written on female circumcision. How is yours different? Mine is different because it takes a not just a longer historical look, meaning I went back a little bit farther, because there have been other historians who've looked at it or mentioned it, and as well as some other scholars have sort of noted it. But I'm the I'm the first one to really take such a long view, meaning looking back and starting in the mid 19th century and taking it up to the present, essentially. Well, and you've also included uh, an immense amount of cultural context in yours. That is also true, yes. Um, I'm trying to actually show that these surgeries uh, weren't anomalies, which they've been painted as sort of random occurrences or anomalies by other scholars who, who haven't really looked at them in sort of the longer term that I did. And I need to explain, well, if, if they have been around that long, if they have been going on um, female circumcision since the mid-19th century to the present, and then clitoridectomy from about the mid-19th century to the last published case I found for the use of that is in the 1960s. So I needed to put a a context, both a a cultural and then a medical context, about why were these procedures being used and why were they used for so very long. So female circumcision, if you think about the clitoris, the clitoris is actually an extensive internal organ. So right now I'm only talking about the external part. And if you think of um, a wishbone from a turkey, I'm I'm talking about the sort of nub where the two sides connect. Um, Those other two sort of arm legs go underneath the vulva. So the female circumcision would take the nub and remove the hood of the nub, but actually leave that external bit of the organ there. Clitoridectomy... The United States then would have removed that external nub. Um, so those are those, those two procedures. The circumcision would have removed the hood, and the clitoridectomy would have removed that external nub. It really depended on um, the clinician and also what they were trying to treat by what they were doing. For the most part, they were trying to treat either masturbation or to enhance female orgasm potential. Now, clitoridectomy was never used for the latter. Clitoridectomy was never used to enhance female orgasm potential. Female circumcision was used for both, both to stop a woman or a girl from masturbating and then also on the other end of the spectrum to increase the possibility a woman's going to have an orgasm specifically during penetrative sex. Yeah, those are two extremes. <laughs> yes. When I first read about the female circumcision in the late 19th, early 20th century, physicians using it to enhance orgasm, I thought, this does not make sense. It seems counterintuitive. <laughs> it seems counterintuitive. It seems paradoxical. And I did not know what to do with that. 
because it didn't fit into this idea that physicians were ignorant of the clitoris and or female sexuality. And this is, I wrote my dissertation, I should say, on this topic. My dissertation, don't anybody ever read because I struggled with this poorly in the dissertation. I couldn't quite figure it out. It's only after I stopped the dis- finished the dissertation, set it aside for a while and started struggling with this book that I really started figuring out female circumcision clitoridectomy had been sort of portrayed by others as being an example of medical ignorance about, like I said, the clitoris of female sexuality. And I thought, I think it needs to be switched. So what if I think about these procedures as actually an example of a medical understanding of female sexuality and the importance of the clitoris, but that still seeing that female sexual behavior is very narrow and it's only supposed to be sort of awakened, if you will, with her male partner, most of the time the husband. So it was only supposed to be within a very narrow context of when she was appropriately being sexual. The two procedures, or the one procedure for two reasons makes sense. Um, and I said this to a neighbor once. If you think of a scale of one to 10, one being masturbation, 10 being orgasm, or excuse me, lack of orgasm with the husband during penetrative sex, they're trying to get you to five. <laughs> five is that you're having an orgasm with your husband during penetrative sex, because that was seen as the normal behavior for uh, women to be engaged in. But but again, there's a wide range of maladies that that this treatment and you cannot see my air quotes uh, was <laughs> was uh, prescribed for everything from uh, you know hypersexuality to listlessness in children. Yes, they were generally sort of for sexual reasons for adult women. Masturbation, hypersexuality, nymphomania, sometimes all those terms were used interchangeably. And the sort of idea that you're still not behaving appropriately. So let's try to um, get you to be where you're being more um, culturally appropriate in your sexual re- sexual behavior. It's saying, okay, this is the organ that's responsible for sort of female sexual response, but it, obviously there's something a little bit wrong with it if she's behaving this way, let's say. So let's see if we can actually go in and maybe do something to the organ to actually promote a certain type of sexual behavior of that being, let's have sexual response with the male partner during uh, penetrative sex. So seeing the importance of keeping that organ, but maybe sort of figuring out how to make the organ be behaving or rather having the woman be behaving how she should be by trying to change the organ. Now with children, in the 19th century, masturbation was a concern um, that had physiological effects. The idea was that actually it was physiologically harmful, which is very hard, I think, for someone in the 21st century to get their arms around. It wasn't just a quote, it was air quotes, bad. It was actually bad for you physically. So there was a concern to stop masturbation because um, you didn't want the person to kind of go down a slippery slope where they might have really poor health outcomes. Um, now, that's true of children and adults as well. Kids, the, the interesting thing when they were doing female circumcision is to sort of either stop or um, prevent masturbation from happening. Again, though, with the idea of hopefully this, she will become a, an adult behaving in an appropriate manner. So it, in a way, these procedures are trying to, at an early age, to have the child stop masturbating, but then with the hope that when she's older, 
she will then sort of follow the the quote unquote normative path, which that being she should be having, like I said, for most of the time, it was seen as sex with the husband. This is Science for the People, and I'm talking to Sarah Rodriguez, author of Female Circumcision and Clitoridectomy in the United States, A History of Medical Treatment. Okay, so the the doctors are prescribing this as a a treatment for everything, apparently, but (laughs) mainly masturbation. So, but what was the perspective of the families of the young girls to the idea that they should get a clitoridectomy? for these issues from their published sources of physicians both for women and for kids it seems like they really weighed whether or not to do a clitoridectomy that was seen as being a pretty extreme procedure and that goes back to this idea of that worried about masturbation's ill effects and maybe if the person they feel like the woman or the child has gone so they're so worried about their health or they see such a detriment to their health that they think that this is sort of a last-ditch effort, if you will. Female circumcision still preserved the clitoris, and so that was seen as being um, maybe not quite as drastic. In fact, there was actually one practitioner in the um, late 19th century, I think. I can't remember when exactly. I think the late 19th century. I think it's quite possibly my favorite quote in the whole book, where he said he can he performed female circumcision, but he considered clitoridectomy burning down a house to roast a pig. Right. I think the other thing to note about this is there's obviously discussion and disagreement going on among practitioners about when is it appropriate to be doing either, and there are practitioners saying we shouldn't be doing either. <laughs> so there's some trying to figure out like when is it appropriate to be doing one, and some saying you shouldn't be doing either. Do we have any sense any. of the, the numbers of these operations? No. Um, and I get asked that fairly frequently, like, well, how common was this? And I always say that I think it was commonly known but I don't think it was commonly performed. You know, neither of these are really time-consuming procedures. They were done most of the time in clinic. Unless the physician published about them, there's no record of them. Uh, I say, though, that I think they are fairly commonly known because they do end up in textbooks like Holtz Pediatrics. You know, when you end up in a major textbook, uh, it does signify that there is some sort of general knowledge about these procedures. Like I said, at least from the published sources, which is all I have to go with, the published sources suggest that, you know, maybe a physician would have done one or two in like their clinical practice. There are some who did much more of that. Most of those seem to be the ones who were doing it for women for orgasm potential, though. Okay, now while this sounds abhorrent, what was the result of the surgeries? Were they successful? Did they achieve what the, the doctors wanted to? So that's a very difficult sort of question to answer. In my book, I do have one little girl. She talks about that she was masturbating and her mother had found her. And after six weeks after um, the physician and the mother decided to remove the organ, the little girl told her mother that she confessed to trying to masturbate again, but told her mother, quote, you know, there is nothing there now. So, of course, I could do nothing, unquote. So, would they would it, would it stop masturbation? I'm not entirely 100% sure because I'm using published records from the physician. Right. So the physician might say, I did this procedure. The mom said she stopped. Well, I don't, maybe, but there's no sort of follow-up to say, and then I checked in six months later and she had stopped. Right. So I'm only using the documents that they have. And I'm really looking at it. Did they think it would stop it? Yes. And that they saw... 
that they, they did think that the, if they did this procedure, it would stop this. Now, ideas about masturbation obviously change over the 20th century, where it starts becoming less of seeing as it actually having detrimental physical um, problems, but it starts being seen as having um, as being, well, it's, it's a normal part of development, unless maybe the kids do it too much, and then it's not normal. Well, then you get into probably parents being worried about, well, what does it mean that my kid is too much? What is too much? So it does start to shift from being a an idea that this is going to cause permanent physical damage to one that's like, well, maybe it's, maybe there's something about it being too much, even though some of it apparently is okay. Well, now, how how did the types of surgeries suggested for different illnesses change over time? Um, well, I think that's kind of one of the most interesting things about it is in a lot of ways they didn't. <laughs> you know, you have, like I said, in the beginning of the 1890s, early 20th century, you start having female circumcision being used not just to treat masturbation, but also to treat lack of orgasm for women. The lack of orgasm for women happens till today. And it's for the same purpose is to expose the clitoris more directly to basically the penis during vaginal sex. That reason hasn't changed. <laughs> and I think that's kind of one of the more interesting things is our idea about what quote unquote counts as sex as at least Americans, as heteros, that hasn't changed. That idea of what counts as sex has been fairly consistent for over a hundred years. You're listening to Science for the People, and I'm here with Sarah Rodriguez discussing female circumcision. Okay, well, that, of course, brings us to how this has evolved. Can you talk about James Burt and his love surgery? Sure. He was an OBGYN who practiced in Ohio from the 50s to the 1950s to the late 1980s. So I came across James Burt because um, part of his love surgery included circumcision. Um, but he began love surgery by actually making a variation on episiotomy repair. And an episiotomy is when physicians cut the vaginal opening either slightly away or straight down towards the anal opening to have a little bit more room during childbirth. It's typically during the second stage of, of childbirth. Um, it made room for the forceps if you were going to have a forceps delivery. Um, episiotomy was incredibly common in the United States in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and even to a good extent in the 1980s as part of a routine part of birth. So routine, in fact, that very you, you basically weren't asked, do you want an episiotomy or not? Because it was just seen as being, this is a normative part of the birth experiences that we do in episiotomy. So his love surgery developed out of um, episiotomy, but his episi- his love surgery was a bit more significant than a standard episiotomy or episiotomy repair, rather. He basically cut a muscle to redirect the vagina so it would kind of go down a little bit. If you um, And then he circumcised the clitoris, and then he sewed up the woman a little bit tighter than would have been sort of your typical episiotomy uh, repair. And he did this beginning, he sort of started developing it in the 50s, the 1960s, and it really, he really saw it as becoming a singular operation that was significantly different by about the mid-70s, late-70s. And he was doing this procedure on his OB patients, but then in the second half of the 1970s, he also started advertising it directly to women um, in magazines 
uh, as a sort of a sex enhancement surgery. Again, kind of playing with the 1970s idea of sex being a lot more sort of out in the open, if you will, much more publicly discussed. And, and he then was sort of capitalizing on that and um, selling his surgery as part of sex being something that was much more commonly discussed publicly. Right. This was actually being sold as the feminist option. Yes. And I will say female circumcision alone at that time was also being sold that way. Um, there were articles in Playgirl, Penthouse Forum, I think, and other places is being sold like this is a liberating procedure. Women should have it, female circumcision, which, of course, in the 1970s, the clitoris did become a sort of organ of liberation, if you will, for for um, some feminists, sort of as they were reacting to the 1960s sexual liberation as responding to that and saying it was very uh, heavy on the sort of male ideas of what sexual revolution would be. And so feminists in the 1970s saying we need to be rethinking about what it means for women to uh, take hold of their own sexuality. And the clitoris became a very important part of that. And that's why you can, you can really hear both with Bert, but then also the people just quote unquote selling female circumcision, this idea of it's, it's a liberating thing that women can be embracing for their own potential, for their own sexual potential. And there were a number of very positive testimonials about this procedure, weren't there? Yes, there are some women who did write about um, having female circumcision um, in, in popular magazines um, of saying they did find it very liberating or at least it made their orgasms a little bit easier. And Bird also received some, not quite as much, but a little bit of positive feedback from the women. There were some women who did agree to be interviewed by some somewhat popular magazines in the 1970s of saying, yes, it, 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 it worked. this procedure worked for me, and I have an orgasm easier with um, during heteropenetrative sex. So what happened then? Why, why aren't women still getting love surgeries? Well... For one, and this is female circumcision too, there, there is some anecdotal evidence, meaning some women have said it worked for them, but there's no actual harder evidence than anecdotal. So nothing more than a couple of some stories that say that um, it was beneficial to them. And to be honest, female circumcision contradicts what we know. If you look at Masters and Johnson's work on um, the clitoris, it, it contradicts that. Um, the clitoris has the hood actually to protect the clitoris to some level. And the, the hood actually retracts during certain parts of sexual response and then covers the clitoris again. So taking it away, yeah, it does expose the organ more, but that's not necessarily good. So now is, is female circumcision still happening in some kind of form in North America? Yes. So if you have heard about surgeries that go under the larger title of Female genital cosmetic surgeries, FGCS. Female circumcision, it's now called clitoral unhooding or clitoral hood reduction, but it's the same procedure. It's obviously an elective procedure. Don't really have good numbers on how many women have had that procedure done. I don't think that they're high, but there has been media reports of saying FGCS in general has had an uptake in popularity. But again, you know, these procedures are also done in a clinical setting. So there's, unless that clinician is reporting how many he or she has done, there's no really way to say, oh, there's been X number. 
So then should we be looking at things like that any differently than the procedures like the love surgery? Well, a significant difference between current FGCS and love surgery was having consent. <laughs> uh, Bert didn't get consent from, it's, it seems like from the majority of the women he performed love surgery upon. That in some ways is indicative of when he was practicing Thinking back, like I said, episiotomy was seen as such a normative part of childbirth that they mo- very most physicians would not have asked for consent for that in the 1960s and 1970s. I'm talking about. So when he was performing love surgery, you know, it might he might not have seen it as being necessary to get consent because he wouldn't have asked for consent for episiotomy. That said, what he was doing was not episiotomy. So. You know, should he have probably been getting a consent before the hospital where he was performing this made him, which was in the late 1970s, start getting a specific consent? Probably. That said, like I just said, the phys- his fellow physicians at the hospital where he was practicing in the late 70s, the hospital basically said, you have to start getting a special consent form for this procedure. So that is a dramatic difference, I would say, between the practices today and the practices then, um, is that... He was doing it largely, like I said, not entirely because there were women who were electing for the procedure, but for the most part, he was doing it without specifically getting the consent of these women. Most of the women who are electing to undergo FGCS, uh, like I just said, they're electing to do it. So they're, they're saying we want this done. Obviously, what's sort of a continuum on both is that who is deciding sort of what's a normative female genitalia. Um, Bert thought he knew what was what the female body should look like. And and that kind of goes the same with the surgeries now that and this isn't my critique, this is a number of other scholars have, have looked at FGCS, including people like Virginia Braun and I could name a couple of others, but to say things like, okay, who's deciding that this is what's normative and why aren't ideas of normativity larger and also it you know does it reinforce ideas of the appropriate quote-unquote behavior for women is basically penetrative and heterosexual which is what the again the female circumcision is being done for just like it was done in 1900 is this idea of okay it's going to expose the clitoris more directly to the penis during penetrative sex but now there is a huge stigma attached to female circumcision in North America. It's it's seen as abusive to children, uh, and for the most part, it's considered at very least unnecessary for adult women. So how did that perspective come about? I'm not sure it was these procedures were ever widely embraced by the public. And I, I say that because female circumcision, actually, there was a group of physicians in the early 20th century who thought what's good for the boys is also good for the girls. And they really wanted to have circumcision at birth for girls as well as boys because they thought it would be preventive for masturbation. That obviously didn't happen. So it seemed, at least from what's published and at least from obviously what I could find where doctors are writing about this, it seemed to be on a very case-by-case basis. So in that sense, you could look at the therapy as being as a procedure done for a very specific cause. So it's less of a change in sort of general acceptance of this being okay, because I don't think there was ever sort of a a sense of this is a perfectly fine operation for everybody. It was, it was very specific to the needs of a particular person. 
That said, I'm not then obviously I think a huge shift has happened with ideas about masturbation. Like I said, my last sort of findings of anyone recommending it for masturbation as a treatment for girls um, was in the 1960s. Perhaps then post that there's been a, a wider acceptance that masturbation at some level, even though it's still a taboo topic to talk about, I think generally, perhaps it was it was no longer seen as being needing a medical fix, if you will. Well, and I, we should probably say that uh, it, circumcision was prescribed for women who uh, appeared or were lesbians. Yes. Yeah. So that has also changed. Yes. And that seemed to, again, from the published sources, so I, I'll be perfectly honest, if someone were to come to me or write to me and say, but it happened to me in the 1970s, I'm not going to be shocked. But I just, nobody published it then. But I wouldn't be surprised if, if somebody wrote to me afterwards and said, this actually happened to me later. But yes, the on the spectrum of when they were using female circumcision or clitoridectomy, also on the spectrum as seeing the causal, whether it was for masturbation or whether it was for um, a woman having sex with another woman, seeing if it was sort of the causal was, okay, is this a sign of a mental condition or is it a sign of a physical condition? If it was a physical condition, they felt like they could interfere with the clitoris or correct the clitoris. Again, seeing that organ as being so central to the female sexual response and sexual behavior. If you could go in and correct that organ, then you could change the behavior was that was the idea behind this. But the other idea was if it was actually seen as being, this is, has more to do with her, her sort of natural state or her mental state, correcting the organ was not seen as something that you could actually then change that behavior because it, but because it wasn't something as seen as being physiologically uh, moldable. Now, we should we we haven't really mentioned the fact that um we usually think of female circumcision uh currently as something that uh they only do to children in other less civilized countries. Yes. So, do you find that people are surprised that North America has this very rich history of female circumcision? Yes. And also if you look at sort of the WHO's definition of what they call FGM, which is female genital mutilation, it's done for quote unquote cultural reasons, for non-medical reasons. And the sort of definition they have up there, it doesn't sort of have room for the American experience of this. And what I'm really hoping is that my book then necessitates a conversation to make room for the American history of this practice. I'm also hoping then that people will stop considering it as just a quote unquote foreign practice or one that was only recently brought here by recent immigrants from parts of the world that have a more widespread practice of various forms of female genital cutting. Um, so yes, I, I, I get that a lot that, that this is sort of, it's, it's a surprising practice that it actually happened here um, on, I'm going to say mostly white women, mostly middle-class white women, because those are the women who could obviously for the most part, since the 19th century to the to the present, those are the ones most likely to be going to the doctor. Why do you think it is that male circumcision was done so much more often than female circumcision? Well, I think one of the reasons that the, this, I will say it was a small group of physicians and they were sort of seen as being, oh, a little irregular, <laughs> even by some physicians who maybe practiced female circumcision once or twice in their careers. The, but they but they really saw female circumcision as being an important sort of preventive health measure for little girls so that they wouldn't masturbate 
as they got older um, for infants, for every infant. And I kind of think this is speculation now because I don't know. I kind of think one of the reasons might actually be mothers and mothers saying no. (laughs) Um, I'm also not entirely sure outside that little circle of, they were called orificial surgeons. And by their name, you can tell that they were very into certain parts of human bodies. Their ideas weren't necessarily embraced widely. So I think those two points are why it wasn't, the uptake wasn't the same for little girls and for little boys. Of course, the clitoris has a, became, like I I said, this quote-unquote feminist organ in the 1970s. And I think that has a lot to do with how we both think about, in the United States, culturally how we think about the organ, about its role in female sexuality. And I think that's also how we think about, we, we, we think along those terms when we think about the practices that, like that, like I said, the practices the WHO labels as FGM. I think the American historical context of the feminist embrace of the clitoris plays a very profound part in larger cultural ideas about um, these practices. Sarah, that was a, a fascinating book. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. And that was Sarah Rodriguez, author of Female Circumcision and Clitoridectomy in the United States, A History of Medical Treatment. And we've linked to her and the book on our site at scienceforthepeople.ca. And we'll be back with Brian Earp to talk about male circumcision after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Schell, and I'm joined now by Brian Earp, a research fellow in science and ethics at the University of Oxford. He served as editor-in-chief of the Yale Philosophy Review, as well as guest editor of the Journal of Medical Ethics, and has seen his work as both a scientist and a philosopher, covered by the BBC, CNN, ABC, The Atlantic, Popular Scientist, and New Scientist, and other major outlets. Brian's here to talk about male circumcision. Good to have you here, sir. It's great to be here. Thanks. So it seems uh, like the science around circumcision changes every few years. I will read an article that says that little boys absolutely should be circumcised because circumcision has been shown to reduce the risk of uh, everything from STIs to cancer, and that if a parent doesn't circumcise their child, they are basically monsters. Um, And then a few (laughs) years go by... And and I'll read another article saying that there's no evidence for any significant health benefit from circumcision and that any parent who circumcises their child is basically a monster. So you see where I'm going with this. Have I, have I accurately reflected the extremes of this position? Well, partially yes and partially no. So one thing you're flagging is what's common to, to many areas of medical research. You probably noticed with nutrition research that one year something gives you cancer and the next year it cures cancer. Exactly. So. So what it shows is that uh, a lot of medical studies have a certain way of getting at the data and they'll get a statistically significant result and it gets published. And then another researcher will come on uh, looking at the data a different way or drawing in a different population and get a different answer. So one thing to think about all medical studies is just that uh, a lot of skepticism is required. You have to sort of stand back and 
ride the roller coaster out a little bit and see what the general trends are. Because from year to year, it's right. You're going to get different answers uh, on the same question. Um, as to whether the science on circumcision has been shifting back and forth like that, um, in terms of sort of general national policies, they remain pretty consistent actually for, for several decades until very recently. So in, if you look at the British policy or the Canadian policy or the American policy on circumcision, uh, none of them recommended circumcision nor suggested that the benefits outweighed the risk until 2012. And the, uh, in this case, the American Academy of Pediatrics released a statement suggesting that the benefits outweighed the risks. And then that was immediately criticized by uh, a consortium of uh, 38 uh, European and Canadian uh, medical experts who suggested that the AAP had misrepresented the literature. So I'd say that the science has been pretty consistent for the past several decades with a somewhat anomalous blip coming out of the United States in 2012. And then that's been sort of reinforced just recently by the Centers for Disease Control, another uh, U.S. institution. But both of these organizations stand uh, in some tension with the medical opinion in peer nations, uh, primarily in uh, Europe and including England. Now, you've written a number of published papers on, on circumcision, so I'd like to take a look at the, the maybe the various benefits that circumcision is said to have and, and see what the science actually says. Um, maybe starting with sexually transmitted infections. There, there have been studies that claim that circumcision reduces the rates of STIs. Can you talk a bit about those studies that say that? The studies on STIs are uh, largely inconclusive. The the one STI that's received a lot of attention is um, HIV. And this comes from randomized controlled trial studies that were conducted in Africa between uh, 2005 and 2007. And they've been given uh, more weight uh, simply because they have a randomized control design. They randomly assign some participants to be circumcised, and they randomly assign some others not to be circumcised. And then they basically waited to see uh, who got HIV. Uh, and uh, these studies are taken to be good evidence of a protective effect. The problem with uh, interpreting these data is that the the spread of disease is determined much more uh, heavily by sort of behavioral and social and environmental factors than by what you might call anatomical or biological factors, such as the presence or absence of a foreskin. So what that means is that these studies that were conducted in Africa, which were conducted with adult volunteers, which is different from how circumcision is done in the United States, primarily to infants, um, is that you can't translate the data over to a non-analogous epidemiological environment, such as the United States or Canada or uh, the countries of Europe, unless you were to assume that the entire effect shown in these studies was due to biological factors, which is just totally contrary to what we know about the spread of sexually transmitted infections. And in those uh, African studies, they didn't actually uh, verify the source of the infection. So they didn't say, well, this came from sexually transmitted infection. That was from iatrogenic sources. This was from, you know, a male partner rather than a female partner. Um, that that information wasn't uh, gathered in those studies. So it's a little hard to track exactly what was going on here and to, to uh, attribute it specifically to the circumcision rather than to something broader about the design of the study. So even if you grant those findings, however, um, it's important to note that the absolute risk reduction was a little over 1%. What you usually hear is 50% or 60%, but what that is is a relative risk reduction. And that means you can divide two basically small percentages and, and you get a big sounding number. So, you know, uh, 60% sounds like a big number, but 60% of a small number is actually a small number. And so the absolute risk reduction is about 1.3%. And that's only in the African environment. We have no idea what it would be in a place like the U.S. and Canada with very different HIV epidemics, lower overall rates of HIV, 
an HIV that spreads primarily uh, among gay men and injecting drug users, whereas the African studies apply only to or purportedly to heterosexually transmitted HIV, which makes up a very small percentage of cases in the U.S. and uh, Canada. So um, my concern with the HIV studies is just that uh, they're being stretched far beyond uh, the implications that are justified on the basis of the data, way outside the epidemiological environment in which they were collected. And they're also being uh, stretched from adults to infants. Again, it just cannot be assumed that the sort of effect that's seen in a clinical study with adults would just map simply onto the infant case. And that's what uh, is being done by these American uh, bodies. Well, now, have, have any similar studies been done in North America? There have not been any randomized control trials in North America, nor have there been any studies of uh, infant circumcision in particular uh, with an experimental design linking it to any reduction in risk of sexually transmitted infections. Um, so what you have are population-based studies where, or cohort-based studies where you look at a group of circumcised men and you sort of come up with a, a control group based on attributes uh, of, of the sample, and you do these statistical tests to look back and forth. The problem with these studies is that they're just riddled with confounds, because unless you can control for all the possible sources of bias and confounding variables, it's unclear what your association means. So this is that famous phrase of uh, correlation doesn't equal causation. And in any case, the studies that have been done in North America are incredibly mixed and don't seem to show an effect one way or the other. So that's why there's been much ado made of these African studies, um, because they have this causal design, this randomized design, but then they're just being uh, transported into an environment in which uh, it's unclear that the results would, would hold. Uh, it's, it's based on a, quite a lot of guesswork, which hasn't been well justified. And are there any plans to replicate those kind of studies here? There don't seem to be. Um, and this, there is some concern here about running these massive cir- circumcision campaigns in Africa with U.S. funding, running studies that probably would never be approved in the United States. Uh, first of all, just enrolling uh, infants in a randomized control trial poses a lot of ethical issues because they obviously can't consent to that participation. And so it would really come down to the idiosyncrasies of which parents wanted to allow their infants to uh, go through this surgery for the, the sake of science. So probably such a study will never be run. Now, you could do an adult uh, study in the U.S., and that that would be very important evidence. Um, If you could get a lot of U.S. adult males who hadn't been circumcised to agree to volunteer for a a randomized control trial, then you might have some meaningful evidence of what things would look like here in the United States. But absent that kind of research, we just don't know. You're listening to Science for the People, and I'm here with Brian Earp, Research Fellow in Science and Ethics at the University of Oxford, and we're talking about male circumcision. So there are also studies that are said to show that circumcision reduces the rates of penile cancer. Can you walk us through those? Uh, the thing to say about penile cancer is that it's one of the rarest cancers in a Western context. Um, some estimates suggest that you're about as likely to be struck by lightning as to get penile cancer, and it's actually lower than the rate of male breast cancer in these countries. So you'd have to perform uh, literally thousands of circumcisions to prevent one case of penile cancer, even on the most optimistic uh, interpretation of these data. So what you often find when you when you read the popular accounts is they say, you know, circumcision radically reduces the incidence of penile cancer, but that's totally meaningless without realizing that penile cancer is vanishingly rare to begin with. 
Furthermore, there's some evidence that uh, the relationship between circumcision and penile cancer doesn't have to do with whether you have a foreskin or not per se, but rather with this mediating variable of hygiene. So uh, if, you, uh, if you are uncircumcised and also don't practice good hygiene, these factors can combine to uh, lead to potentially uh, risk factors for penile cancer. Um, but uh, that doesn't have to do with circumcision per se, but rather with hygiene. So are the studies sound, though? taking all the rest into account? Uh, um, every study has its strengths and weaknesses. What you'll find at the end of any medical study is a section that says limitations and considerations for future research. Uh, what happens, though, is when you get media reporting, they usually only look at the abstract of the study, the first page of the document, which is always the most optimistic presentation of the data that make the study look like it really showed something important. So I would say that the consensus among experts uh, on the quality of these data is that Given the low rates of penile cancer and the uh, optimistic interpretation of efficacy of this uh, of circumcision, you would have to perform uh, uh, several thousands of circumcisions to prevent one case. You know, there's something else that's that's bothering me about this. Uh, even if there was a significant reduction uh, in penile cancer in those that have been circumcised, we don't use that same argument for other body parts. Um, like, I'm sure preemptively removing a woman's breasts reduces the rate of breast cancer, but, but we don't see a lot of that, and especially not in children. So is, right. is my logic off? Is that a flawed comparison? Well, the difference some people would say is they'd say, well, obviously breasts are very valuable and, and they serve all these functions, and so why would you want to remove breasts? But whereas the foreskin is often thought to be a sort of you know, vestigial structure, some sort of useless piece of skin. And so the, the cost of excising it seems to be much less. But uh, first of all, that's based on a, a largely ignorance about basically penile anatomy. I mean, of course, we're talking about genitals, which means we're in a taboo area. And at least in the U.S. context, which I'm familiar with, um, even doctors have very little knowledge of uh, of the anatomy of the intact penis. There's been some studies on medical school textbooks um, throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s when a lot of today's doctors were getting their medical training, and they simply don't depict the foreskin anywhere in it because it's assumed that it would have been removed at birth. Right. Whereas if you were to look at medical textbooks in Europe, they talk about the vascularization, the uh, innervation, they talk about the protective functions, the sexual functions, and so on. So um, some of this view that the foreskin has little value is just simply based on, on, on ignorance of the relevant anatomy. Um, but it's true. If you were to remove the breast buds of, of infant girls, you would dramatically reduce the incidence of breast cancer. The reason we don't do that is because we don't know what risk profile any particular girl has for getting breast cancer. And you'd end up removing the breasts of a lot of girls when only some fraction of them would ever even be at risk or, or serious risk for breast cancer. So what you normally do is you, you wait until uh, you have uh, a more adult patient who can weigh up the value of her, her body parts being intact compared to the risk that she may face of getting breast cancer. And then you let it, you let her make the decision. Uh, and so in the case of Angelina Jolie, she very famously elected to have prophylactic mastectomy. She knew she had a very high risk, according to some genetic profile of breast cancer. And she decided that it was worth it to her to, as it were, sacrifice her breasts in favor of reducing this risk. But if we were to just have done this willy-nilly to girls or to Angelina Jolie in infancy or something, um, that would be a, a rather backwards way of going about finding a solution to this problem. 
Now, earlier you mentioned hygiene. There are studies that show that hygiene is improved with circumcision, correct? Uh, that's not true. There's something called phimosis, which is an, a difficulty of retracting the foreskin, which is very rare. And in some cases where you can't retract the foreskin into the early teenage years, um, you may want to treat this in some way, but you actually don't need a circumcision. You can use a steroid cream and some stretching and you can loosen up the, the foreskin. But in, in almost every other case where the foreskin retracts naturally uh, after several years, uh, all you have to do is roll the foreskin back, which is, first of all, takes about one second to do. Because of the innervation of the foreskin, it's it's even quite pleasurable to do. And boys can uh, learn to wash their genitals, obviously, just as well as girls can. If the concern were about hygiene on the grounds of simply having folds of tissue that could uh, attract bacteria or something like that, uh, a girl's vulva has far more folds of, of tissue, and uh, bacteria can get trapped underneath the clitoral hood, for example, and among the folds of the labia. But again, no one would, would ever consider preemptively removing uh, a little girl's labia in order to reduce the instance of, say, urinary tract infections, uh, which girls get at, at about 10 times the rate uh, of boys. In those cases, in the rare event that a girl gets a urinary tract infection in this period, she's prescribed antibiotics. And the same uh, should be done for boys. About 1% of boys will get a urinary tract infection in the first few years of life, regardless of circumcision status. And in that rare event uh, of that 1% case, you can treat the infection. You don't need to try to prevent it by removing the tissue in advance when you'd have to perform something like 100 circumcisions to prevent one urinary tract infection. Okay, since we're talking about uh, claimed benefits, I, I have to point out the study that claims to show that women simply like circumcised penises more. Well, there's a couple of studies um, that draw different results. What you find is that um, the sort of aesthetic preferences of women depends radically on which women you ask and where they are in the world and what the local cultural norm is. So the one study that's commonly cited was carried out in the, the American Midwest in the late 1980s. And of the sample of women, only 24 of them had actually had sex with both circumcised and intact men. Uh, and there was a statistically significant preference for the circumcised penis in this case. But of course, these are in the American Midwest, circumcision is a cultural norm and rates are the highest of anywhere in the developed world. So most of these women are raised to see a circumcised penis as being normal. Um, if you were to conduct a study in anywhere in Europe, most many places in Canada where rates are much lower than the, in the United States, uh, on the west coast of the United States where rates are also very low, Australia, New Zealand, in other words, most of our peer nations where the intact penis is the norm and where a circumcised penis looks sort of funny, or some even describe it mutilated to use sort of emotive language, uh, you'd get a very different result. So to pick one study from the American Midwest from the late 80s with a, a sample size of 24 relevant respondents um, gives us very little informational value about the actual preferences of women speaking generally. What are the rates of circumcision now in the U.S.? Those figures are contested, and the reason why it's hard to know is because we don't have any mechanism in place to uh, count all the circumcisions. Some circumcisions are done in hospitals, and we have fairly good records for that, but some are done uh, within Judaism and Islam, often outside the hospital, sometimes in the home, and then we don't have records for those cases. Sometimes they're done in, a, in an outpatient setting, and record-keeping is inconsistent. So the answer is we don't know, but we do know that circumcision rates have dropped considerably in recent years. So they peaked in probably the 70s or the 80s in the United States. Anyway, they never get, got as high in Canada. Uh, the United States has, has always been a sort of outlier in terms of uh, circumcision rates in industrialized nations. Um, and it's dropped and dropped and dropped. And now the official estimate 
by the American Academy of Pediatrics recently cited about a 50% uh, overall rate, but it varies considerably from part of the country to part of the country. So again, on the West Coast of the United States, you have uh, very low rates, under 50%, some places 30%, 20%, 10%, uh, whereas in the Midwest, the South, uh, and particularly in the state of New York, you have very high rates of circumcision, but the overall rate seems to hover around 50% currently. This is Science for the People, and I'm talking to Brian Earp, Research Fellow in Science and Ethics at the University of Oxford about male circumcision. Okay, let's talk about the negative claims about circumcision. Uh, What is the scientific perspective on potential complications uh, with circumcision in little boys? Yeah, this is very interesting. So when you look at a statement by the American Academy of Pediatrics or the Centers for Disease Control, they balance the purported benefits of circumcision against what they call the uh, the risks. But you have to say, well, risks of what? And what it turns out that they mean are risks of surgical complications. And when you look further at the data that they cite, what it turns out to mean is the risk of basically immediate surgical complications or complications that would be apparent within one month of the surgery. And the reason why this is problematic is that the most common complication uh, for circumcision and which commonly requires a surgical correction is something called meatal stenosis, which is a narrowing of the urethral opening. And this particular condition uh, often takes several months to develop or be detectable. So if you limit your window of investigation to only the first month after a circumcision and you only focus on the immediate surgical complications and that's all you include in the negative column for circumcision, basically ignoring the inter immediate and long-term consequences, then you're going to, you're, you're going to sort of uh, have a misleading sense of the benefit-to-risk ratio. Another problem with thinking that surgical risks are the only problem uh, or adverse consequence of circumcision is that we wouldn't ever use this test for any other healthy part of the body. So to go back to your example of prophylactic mastectomy. Imagine reading a report by the CDC that said the benefits of removing a girl's breast buds are very great because it would reduce their instance or their chance of getting breast cancer. And then imagine that they said, and this outweighs uh, the risks of the surgery. And, and all they meant was the risk of surgical complication. In other words, they didn't sort of count the breasts as having any particular value and they didn't count the loss of function um, or the loss of sensitive tissue as being in and, in and of itself a cost. So it would be a very strange thing to do, um, but that's exactly what they do in the case of the foreskin. They essentially assign it a value of zero, and then they have a very limited look at the immediate surgical complications, and that's the number that they give, which is in the low percentages. And then they sort of assert that the benefits outweigh this low number. Um, but the calculus is sort of corrupt to begin with because it doesn't include the intermediate and long-term adverse consequences, many of which haven't even been studied. So you mentioned decreased sensitivity, and this one is actually counterintuitive to me because I saw a study that claimed that there was no decrease in sensitivity among men who had been circumcised. Right. So we always have to ask where are these data coming from, what kind of study was conducted, and so on. So there is a little bit of data suggesting that there's no decrease in sensitivity, and these are drawn from these very same African trials that were conducted on adult men uh, who were uh, volunteering to be circumcised with the thought that this would help uh, prevent the transmission of HIV. And they were administered these questionnaires. As it turns out, the questionnaires weren't published, but a colleague of mine uh, asked to see them from the original researchers. And then he's published a, a criticism of them in which he says that the questions were basically so blunt and unvalidated 
that they couldn't have detected a difference in uh, sexual satisfaction or function or sensitivity, even if it existed. It basically said, um, you know, what's your sensitivity, low, none, medium, or high? Well, that's not a very uh, scientifically uh, nuanced way of assessing this this question, and it's just based on self-report on a pen and paper survey. So if you want to get um, a better sense, you should look at a study by Sorrells and colleagues from 2007, which actually used a fine-touch filament, and they went and they actually saw um, what was the, the objective sensitivity of the circumcised versus um, intact penis. And in their study, they demonstrated that Basically, the most sensitive portion of the penis and the, the portion of the penis that includes the most fine-touched neuroreceptors is the foreskin. And so by removing it, you're actually removing the most touch-sensitive part of the penis, and then you're exposing the head of the penis, the glands, to uh, irritation as it rubs against clothing year after year. So another point about this is if you want to ask what are the effects of circumcision on uh, you know sensitivity of the head of the penis, you can't just look at adult studies in Africa where they gave them a pen and paper survey up to two years after the after the event, you'd have to look at studies of infant circumcision where you gave them sensitive measures many years after the event because obviously a decrease in sensitivity may take a number of years to develop. It's not something you would detect just two years after the fact. So again, anytime you read a claim, you know, a study says, scientists say, it has been shown, you know, that it has no effect on uh, sexual sensitivity or whatever the outcome is, you must always ask, what was the study that was conducted? How did they measure it? How did they define function, for example? This is another huge one. They say it has no effect on fu- on function, where they define function to basically mean the ability to ejaculate. But, of course, there are many other functions that the foreskin serves and many other experiences that the uh, foreskin plays in sexual uh, uh, satisfaction that's not reducible simply to the mere capacity to ejaculate or the mere capacity to experience pleasurable sensations. For example, all sensations in the foreskin itself are necessarily removed by circumcision. And this is quite a lot of tissue. It's about 30 or 50 square centimeters of tissue in the adult organ. So one thing we're sure of is that it removes all sensation in the foreskin itself. It also removes all functions that involve manipulation of this tissue uh, for masturbation or uh, sexual motions during intercourse. So also pay attention to definitions. How do they define function? If they basically define function in such an abstract way that it's the sort of thing that won't be affected by circumcision, then their their point is only trivially true because they've defined their way into that conclusion. All right. So we sound like we have a whole bunch of flawed studies, uh, flawed in various different ways. But what do the, the major health organizations say about circumcision? And I'm thinking specifically of the CDC guidelines. Sure. So the recent CDC guidelines have just been released in draft form. Um, They were released, interestingly enough, to the media uh, before having been peer-reviewed. Uh, and I'm in correspondence with some of the reviewers of this document, and I've also looked at the document uh, itself, and it's replete with errors. So I'd be cautious about sort of taking for granted what the CDC says, and I'll describe some of those errors if you like. Um, but their basic assessment is that, as they say, the benefits of circumcision outweigh the risks, where, again, they define risk to mean the risk of immediate surgical complication, ignoring the intermediate and long-term risks, uh, and where the benefits are based on studies conducted in Africa on adult men being imported to North America uh, and infant boys, which is a a scientifically tenuous move to make. So is there a a serious lack of consensus then around circumcision? What you find is that it depends on where you live. If you live in the United States where there has been a a long cultural habit of circumcision, 
uh, you find that doctors tend to have a, a favorable attitude toward it, most of whom are circumcised themselves and therefore don't have any personal uh, sort of experience or understanding of the functions or the anatomy of the foreskin. So to them, they sort of say, well, you know, I was circumcised and I got along fine. What could be the big problem? Whereas when you look at most peer nations to the United States and you look at their national policies, they absolutely do not recommend circumcision or the very opposite. If you look at, for example, the Royal Dutch Medical Association, they suggest that the inverse is true. They say the risks outweigh the benefits and that uh, doctors should actively discourage parents from pursuing circumcision. Now, of course, these doctors have access to the very same data as these task force who sit on the AAP or the CDC panels, um, but they just draw very different conclusions. And I think people sometimes are misled by the idea that, quote, the CDC says X. It's not really the CDC. It's a working group of however many people, five, six, seven, eight, who are tasked with the job of analyzing a vast and contentious and inconclusive literature and then giving their best assessment of it. But, of course, the way that they review that literature and the assessment that they give and the conclusion they draw – um, may be different from what scientists uh, with a different background or who analyze the literature differently reach. So what's interesting about this is because circumcision is such a culturally variable practice, you find that doctors uh, from different cultures draw sometimes opposite conclusions about what the studies say given any particular claim. And so on this particular issue in medicine, the contentious nature of the findings is much greater than you find even even with other areas of medicine. Uh, so um, there isn't really a, a global consensus because you find pockets of discord depending on which uh, doctors you ask. So is the question then, do the health benefits that circumcision may provide outweigh a child's right to bodily autonomy? Is that the question? Well, most of the most of the the purported health benefits wouldn't kick in until an age of sexual debut because almost all of them have to do with a supposed reduction in sexually transmitted infections. But again, the the you have to wear a condom either way or practice other forms of safe sex uh, in order to to have any sort of reliable security that you won't face problems in this area. Uh, and circumcision, if it has any effect at all, has a very minor effect in the absolute risk reduction domain. And so most teenagers who are sexually active and are considering whether they should undergo a circumcision, if they were to sort of rationally reason through it, would find it's not a very logical thing to do. You have to sacrifice a lot of erogenous genital tissue for a very small gain in, in, a, in a potential risk reduction uh, in terms of sexually transmitted infections, which may not even apply to you if you uh, engage in the, the basic safe sex practices that, that you should be doing. In the case of infants, we have no idea what safe sex practices they will or will not adopt. And uh, most of the benefits don't have anything to do with boys before uh, an age of sexual debut. And so uh, there's no reason to rush the surgery and do it uh, right at the beginning of life when the the person who's actually going to be affected by the surgery has no opportunity to dissent or object or even experience intact genitals and see what his own opinion would be. So for this reason, if circumcision should should be performed at all, if that's a decision that gets made, uh, ethicists are increasingly arguing that it should be made by the person whose penis it is, uh, who will have to live with the lifelong consequences, who will have to be subjected to the surgical risk on a healthy part of his body that has no disease or deformity. Um, and many people would find that to be not worth the risk. Now, if you're an adult and you want to undergo some kind of cosmetic surgery, if you want to get piercings or tattoos or any other kind of uh, extreme body modification, in Western societies, we're pretty liberal about letting adults make that decision. But if you think about our attitudes about children, 
in the United States, anyway, you can't tattoo a child um, because we respect their right to bodily autonomy and we don't make um, non-medically necessary permanent alterations to their body because they might resent them later. So this leads to some pretty absurd conclusions, which is that if you wanted to tattoo your son, you couldn't. If you wanted to tattoo your, your son's foreskin, you couldn't because of the prohibition on tattooing uh, minors. But if you wanted to completely cut off your son's foreskin and then tattoo it, that would be okay. Um, so I think the attitude that exists in Western societies with respect to circumcision, which is a pretty severe genital modification, is really in tension with the general ethical principles we use to consider whether we should be making permanent modifications to children's bodies and especially to their private parts. Brian, thanks very much for being here. Uh, thanks very much for having me on. And we've linked to Brian Earp and his work on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. While you're there, you can listen to and comment on all our past episodes. Click the link to connect with us on social media or subscribe to the show on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. 